Okay. Can I get a hand from all my country music people out there? All right, this one's for you. Every generation of country music radio has been a war. I heard that line recently on a podcast, and I could immediately guess where this was going. The host went on to trace the history of the genre with a stop at each generation's get-off-my-lawn grumbling from the old guard about what constitutes real country music and how it ain't the schlock that's playing on the radio today. The host went on to say that when Garth Brooks skyrocketed to fame in the early 1990s, Waylon Jennings was sure that his polished sheen would ruin real country music. Not surprising from the man who wrote one of the all-time great country songs, in my opinion. I don't think Hank done it this way. What Hank are we talking about? Hank Williams, thank you. Just to educate everybody while we're going. In 1974, the Country Music Association voted Olivia Newton-John Female Vocalist of the Year, beating out mainstays like Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton. In response, Porter Wagner, Conway Twitty, George Jones, Tammy Wynette, they gathered a bunch of other frequent flyers from the Grand Ole Opry to form the Association of Country Entertainers to protest Smooth Pop's incursion into real country music. In the very next year after that, John Denver was named Entertainer of the Year. Charlie Rich had the honor of announcing it, but as soon as the words left his lips, he promptly lit the envelope on fire. <laughs> because surely Olivia and John were going to ruin real country music. In the 60s, real country fans moaned about how the overproduced Nashville sound was ruining the genre, but not before Elvis did so in the 50s with all that rock and roll racket. And speaking of noise, in the 40s, country acts added drums to the bandstand, and that was surely going to ruin real country music, and all that because in the 30s, the king of Western swing himself, Bob Wills, just wouldn't settle down and play some nice, pure country music like Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family. Every generation of country music radio has been a war. And I can promise you that you won't have to look far to find somebody who will tell you that country musicians today, the Luke Bryans, the Kenny Chesneys, ain't real country music either. Waylon was right. I don't think Hank done it this way. But all of this tells us a lot more about humans than it does about country music, right? We are good at arguing about what is authentic, what is sincere, what is real. Today is Pentecost, it's the church's birthday. And in the church's two millennia history, you can bet that folks have wondered about and argued over what makes a church the real church of Jesus Christ. Now, the most typical reading for Pentecost Sunday is the, the story of the disciples huddled in an upper room when all of a sudden the Spirit blew the doors open and tongues of flame settled on each one of them, allowing them to 
speak in a different language so that all people might hear and understand the gospel story. It's the story of how this ragtag collection of scared and scattered disciples became the brave and bold apostles who fearlessly proclaimed Jesus as the risen Lord. Well, this morning, I'd like to look just a bit beyond that story to where Peter, full of that same Holy Spirit, he's just delivered his first sermon. And afterwards, the church has its first new member class of 3,000 people. And I wonder if it's here where we might catch some hints about what precisely made the first church the real church of Jesus Christ. So a reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know if you were aware, but our, our friend and organist Joey, he just returned from a trip to Italy about a week ago. And at staff meeting this week, I asked Joey to give us a little report of his favorite things. The highlight for me, he said, was Vatican City. If you've never been before, it's practically this, this palace filled with the most amazing art. And then he offered this, this hilarious and insightful aside. He said... Well, you know, walking through there, you can see why there was a Reformation. It's pretty funny, I thought. That does sound about right, because I don't think Jesus done it this way either. We started taking nominations for our favorite hymn bracket. And wow, y'all really took the bait. Great first week response. We've got enough to do a field of 64, maybe, but we won't probably. But to shamelessly plug my own favorite, when I think about the church Jesus intended and the church that is, these lyrics come to mind. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Vote for that one. <laughs> well, the church most certainly wanders off the path. 
And from time to time, the church is in sore need of course correction. Phyllis Tickle generalized, general, generalized, I can say that word, Phyllis Tickle generalized that about every 500 years, the church feels compelled to have a giant rummage sale. Now, you know how a rummage sale goes, right? There's the keep pile and there's the junk pile. Do I still need this stack of mad magazines from third grade? Eh, they're really not that funny anymore, so let's get rid of those. What about this box of mixtapes? Nope, nope, too many memories, got to hold on to those. But I might be time to throw the singing catfish back into the wild. That's how a rummage sale goes. One day, all of that stuff coexists in your house. But as soon as you have a rummage sale, the line between the keepers and the junk becomes so much clearer. During the Protestant Reformation, the church as we know it did that kind of searching inventory, dispensing with a great deal of the accumulated tradition from the Catholic Church. The church is not cardinals and popes, the reformers said. The church is not Latin liturgies that nobody can understand. The church is not venerating relics of the saints or countless Hail Mary full of graces. In that great rummage sale, it's easy to make the junk pile. It's easy to determine what you want to get rid of. It's easy to say what the church is not. But what you put in the keep pile, well, that's different. How you articulate what makes for the real church of Jesus Christ is a crucial question. John Calvin was one of the great minds of the Reformation. He's responsible for so much of our theology. He developed this idea that the true church could be distinguished by certain marks, the marks of the church, he called them. He maintained that there are two marks in the true church, the pure preaching of the word of God and the right administration of the sacraments. When these are practiced with integrity, there you will find an authentic church. Let's unpack those, though. By the pure preaching of the word, I believe he means that, that Scripture is read in the language of the people. And it's interpreted by somebody trained to do so in order that its message might become plain, accessible, and relevant to the lives of those receiving it. It's at this point I would like to apologize for the many, many times when I have not succeeded at that, friends. <laughs> now, by the sacraments rightly administered, I suspect Calvin was making a distinction between the two sacraments of the Protestant churches versus the seven sacraments of the Catholic tradition. The Reformers reduced it to just baptism and the Lord's Supper, for two reasons, really. The first conviction was that, well, unlike marriage or joining a holy order, becoming a, a monk or a nun, true sacraments are open to all people. The second reason is that these two sacraments were specifically commanded by Jesus in Scripture. Go, therefore, and baptize people of every nation, he says. So baptism. 
do this in remembrance of me, communion. These marks of the church determined what went in the junk pile and what was put in the keep pile. And that's how you'll know the real church of Jesus Christ. And it also seems consistent with what our reading from Acts tells us about that early church. Those who received the message were baptized, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But what I want to ask you, what I want to ask us, when you think about what it means for you to be a part of the church, a church, does that list feel complete? Is it really just about the preaching and the sacraments and nothing more? Later, Protestants decided that the list was somehow incomplete, so they added a third mark of the church. Now, I'd make you guess, but I fear you would probably never get it. They added discipline to the list, the exercise of discipline. And doesn't that strike our modern ears a bit odd? I don't know about you. For me, it it conjures images of Hester Prynne wearing a scarlet letter for having a child out of wedlock or some other such examples of public shaming. And yet... Matters of discipline did occupy a great deal of the church's attention. I don't know if you're aware, but there has been a church operating on this site for nearly 200 years. In 1850, the church recorded 12 members with an annual budget of $244. That sounds nice. Not the members part, by the way, just the budget part. It never grew past 50 members until the 1900s. And the session, which consisted of three elders who often served for life, so you're welcome for those three-year term limits, (laughs) while a study of the session's minutes tells us that administering discipline was really one of the chief preoccupations of the session at that time. In an 1859 letter to one recalcitrant member, the session described itself as the guardians of the peace and purity of the church and charged this offending member of habitually neglecting the means of grace, that he never attended worship and by common rumor is charged with behaving himself unworthily of a profession of a Christian being given to improper use of spiritous drinks and to indulgence in profane language. Well, let us give glory to God that the Chapel Hill of today is free from such behaviors. (laughs) This offending member was not only suspended from membership in the church, but his suspension was announced publicly during the next Sunday's service. Ouch. Now that one has a little bit of humor to it, but another case strikes me as a bit more sad. 
From 1878 to 1885, the session struggled with a member and a professor at the university who appears to have struggled with alcoholism. He apparently attempted sobriety, but relapsed often, and he was eventually dismissed from membership when he failed to appear before the session for discipline. That's a different kind of ouch. And I don't think Jesus done it that way. So lest you think I'm only picking on the Catholic Church, Reformed Presbyterians are just as prone to wander, prone to leave the God who is love. I doubt discipline would make a modern list of the marks of a true church, but I sincerely invite you to consider what would you add to that list? Beyond the word proclaimed and the sacraments shared, what would you consider to be a mark by which you would recognize the true church? Would it be friendship? Acts tells us that they held all things, that, that the Christ followers broke their bread together with glad hearts. Friendship. Would it be service and outreach? Because Acts also tells us that they held all things in common, that they would sell their possessions and distribute the proceeds to any who had need. There could be any number of other marks that tell us we're in the real Church of Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do is encourage you to talk about it with your friends, with your family. Consider what your marks of the church might be. Truth be told, I'd love for you to email them to me. I'd love to see what we can build as our own list together. But mostly, mostly I ask for your help to ensure that whatever the marks might be, that we work together to live into those marks at all times. That we open ourselves to, be, to being reformed by that same spirit that breathed the church into being so long ago. And who knows, perhaps future generations will look back at us and say, I think they did do church in the Jesus way. May it be so. Amen.